Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin the reading at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And this begins our text for tonight. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this, your Sabbath day, for the opportunity to gather, to read and hear your word preached. And I pray that as I preach, your word, as we are sure, will not go out in vain, that it will prick the hearts of those who listen and that they would be able to focus these few minutes on your word and the high things of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. The name of Hugh Latimer should be one with which all English-speaking Christians are familiar. Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester in England during Uh, the first stages of the Reformation of that country from the darkness of superstition under Romanism to the light of the great doctrines of grace. He taught at Cambridge first and then at Oxford. He was a fiery and direct preacher, one of those men who helped kickstart the cause of the Reformation in the whole of the British Isles. He lived, let it be said, for Christ. Latimer is perhaps best known, however, for the manner of his death. And on the ascension of a Catholic queen to the throne of England, who has rightly gone down in history with the moniker Bloody Mary, Latimer was arrested and charged with heresy. He was found guilty by a panel of papist judges, but when the sentence of death was read, His only response was these words, I thank God most heartily that he has prolonged my life to this end that I may may in this case glorify God by this kind of death. And in the text before us today, we find the apostle Peter, or excuse me, Paul, (laughs) rather, 
uh, in the same position as Bishop Latimer would find himself some 1,500 years later. He's imprisoned by an authority that hates true religion, and he has the opportunity to encourage those around him by his words in this trial. It seems striking to me how closely Bishop Latimer's words reflect the sentiments of Paul, whose main objective in this text is to show that, as the text says, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And in order to explore this objective, I will first give some background, then directly address Paul's objective, the resources with which he was to accomplish that objective, and the resolve that he had to do it, and then conclude with some points of application. So then, Paul's objective, his resources, and his resolve. And I'm told that this church worked through Philippians uh, not too long ago, so I won't dwell too long in the background. But Paul here has written this letter to his friends and partners in evangelism at the church in Philippi, a church in what we would now call Greece, himself most likely being imprisoned in Rome. He's awaiting the final appeal before the imperial court itself, which would ultimately result in his execution in Rome. Philippians as a whole is a a positive letter. It's written not as a critique or as a correction of wrong teaching, but it's written to encourage the congregation whom he considered co-workers, co-laborers of the gospel. And in this first chapter of this letter, Paul is so far reflecting on his relationship with the church at Philippi and on his own circumstances, his, his gospel ministry, his imprisonment, and now his impending trial. Indeed, he makes sure to show how God has already used his captivity to advance the gospel by the provision of gracious aid and by amazing providence. And by his imprisonment, he's already been able to uh, spread the gospel even to his jailers, the imperial guard. And here, where our text begins in the second part of verse 18, Paul goes from describing Uh, his past and current situation to the future tense and future action. He says that he will rejoice, that this will turn out for my deliverance, and that Christ will be honored. It is important to note this language. He is speaking of Christian living, even if he's just speaking about his own life and his own living. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the temptation at this point in the text, is for us to look at it as Paul's experience only. But my dear friends, we are speaking about ourselves, not just about Paul. It is true of Paul first and foremost, but what is true of Paul should be true of every sincere Christian. And this is most blatant, of course, when we come to verse 21, and that great summation of the Christian life, Right? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Pay attention, friends, and although it's early in this sermon, ask yourselves, keep asking yourselves throughout, can we honestly say with this man that for me, to live is 
Christ. Is that true of us? And with that question in mind, we can turn then to Paul's objective. That is, as he says in verse 20, I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's objective is that in all things, Christ will be honored. And the the word here, honored, it's a good translation, uh, but it lacks the emphasis. It's, it's clear that this is the central thrust of the passage. Literally, it means to make great, make large, like huge. So we could uh, say uh, that here Paul not only means that Christ is to be honored, but that he is to be made great. We could say magnified or exalted. And honored in what? Magnified in what? In my body whether by life or by death. Paul is not being theoretical or hypothetical when he speaks of honoring Christ. He's being absolutely personal. He's in prison, about to stand trial, and he knows that if he receives a guilty verdict, he will face capital punishment. The destruction of his earthly body, and and Paul is preparing for this outcome, and his expectation, his hope, is that he will not bring any shame on Christ's name, but will remain faithful and give a good acquittal of the hope that he has in Jesus Christ. And Paul does not know, of course, at this point, what will happen to him. But he does know that this, as the text says, will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance here, we in other places translate salvation. In fact, this line itself is, interestingly enough, a quote from Job chapter 13. And in that chapter, there is a legal, a courtroom context with Job defending himself from the dock, speaking to and answering back to God. And Job says, behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. And then there's the line that Paul quotes to describe his hope standing before his own judge. This will be my salvation. Job argued his case before God. Paul will make his defense before an earthly magistrate. But he, too, knows that he is in the right and that though he be slain, he will hope in Jesus Christ. And this will be his salvation, his deliverance. And indeed, Paul's language is incredibly rich here. He not only quotes from Job, but also from David at multiple points in this short passage. And that's why we read from Psalm 34. There in verse 6, we get a picture, really, of, of Paul's situation. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This is the reliance, the faith that Paul has in his dire circumstances. The Lord will save him out of all his troubles. And to the same end, this is the faith in the way in which this salvation will be worked out, whether by life or by death, to honor, to magnify God. These two truths 
of this situation. Paul's deliverance and Christ's magnification come together in the unparalleled amazing statement by Paul in our text. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the iconic slogan, if you will, of the Christian faith by Paul. Professor uh, Hugh Jones of Westminster, California, says that all that Paul expectantly declares in verse 20 is the consequence of the statement of glorious fact which he is able to make in verse 21. The logic and authentic spiritual experience does have a logic about it, is that because Christ has become life itself to him in the context of dying, in the context of living, rather, dying must be gain and nothing but gain. Paul is determined to be able to live or to die or to live in dying to Christ's glory. This is the highest statement of Christian experience in the whole of the New Testament, and every Christian should aspire to it. While this may be the most brief, poignant expression of this truth, living to Christ, dying being gain, it's a thoroughly Pauline concept. Paul repeats it time and time again in his letters to various churches because it is at once the highest calling and the most universal baseline of the Christian faith. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain, is the Christian life, summed up. To the Romans, Paul says, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And again, to finish, to the Romans, Paul says that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Paul, indeed all Christians, are living in Christ and death is gain because we have already died in Christ. You cannot live in the Lord Jesus Christ if you have not died with him. Without him as your savior, you stand condemned, not just by an earthly judge like Paul, but by and before the God of the universe. In in the same passage in Job that Paul quoted from earlier, Job questions the men around him. He asks, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? 
he will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? You who have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ, who have not confessed him as your savior, are you ready to stand in judgment before the ultimate authority? Your sins may hang over you. You know them very well, and what's more, God does, even if you've never told a soul. You've sinned against a perfect, holy, and righteous God. Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Will you plead your case to God? I tell you, you will not win such a case. You cannot deceive him as you would deceive a man. Your sins will be found out and exposed in the great high court of God. And if you were brought to that court today, what would the judgment be? What would they convict you of? You have no hope in your own claims or in your own defense. You need someone to take your place. You need a savior, a deliverer, as Paul did. Come to him. Come to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and all the heavy load that you've been carrying all these years. Lay them down at the cross. There is blood shed for you. And there is a lamb, Jesus Christ, perfect and spotless. And the lamb of the blood will cleanse you white as snow. Only as Paul says here, die to yourself and live to Christ. Only then will you be able to say honestly for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. No Christian either can save himself. It is a work of God. We know this very well. In the text that we have before us, Paul does not claim to have accomplished his own deliverance or even to honor Christ by his own work, but he has certain resources which enable him to do all that is appointed for him and which have been given to him by God. Paul lists two resources and that are at his immediate disposal with which to achieve his objective of honoring Christ. And these are listed in verse 19, your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And we'll address these in reverse order because the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ informs and bases our prayers. You know, this saying, the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ is remarkable in a few ways. First, it's a plainly Trinitarian statement, as Paul is oft wont to make. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And all three persons, indeed, are at work here. But the Spirit is brought to the fore for a reason, while most of the rest of the book is focused directly on the work of Christ, the person of Christ himself. That is because the resource Paul is focusing on is the help of the Spirit, the Spirit is indeed that, that helper promised by Jesus to that New Testament church. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble, and Paul is certainly in trouble, we could say, here. And the word used in the King James kind of gets to the root of the idea of help. It's the supply of the Spirit, or otherwise the provision 
that well from which Paul draws encouragement in both bodily and spiritual sustainment. This supply is the main means by which Paul expects to be delivered and which will empower him to honor Christ in all cases. Paul does not expect to do anything by his own strength. He knows that his own strength would fail, that his piety would slacken, or that his courage would wane and soon run dry if he were acting in his own strength. But he is supplied, he is helped, not by his own strength, but by the spirit of Jesus Christ. Christian, you cannot live to Christ on your own power. Not only do you first need to die to the world, die with Christ in order to live with him, but you need his power to constantly uphold and supply you. Don't try to do it alone. You've tried that before. It hasn't worked. You were, one time you thought you were progressing in the Christian life and thought you were making headway in, in, in prayer or in holiness, Bible reading, and then you hit a dry period or some uh, bosom sin overcame you. You can't get anywhere by your own power. Rely on the strength, that supply of the Holy Spirit. It's the only means by which you can live the Christian life. And secondly then, your, your prayers, that is the prayers of the whole congregation of the church at Philippi. Again, brothers, sisters, we are not in this alone. We have a whole body of saints, all the saints still alive today, to ask to pray for and with us. And asking someone to pray for you, as Paul does here, indeed elsewhere as he commands to the Corinthians, you also must help us by prayer. It's a wonderful opportunity to unburden yourself of the weight of whatever you're going through. You don't even need to be specific. Only give another brother or sister the opportunity to show their love for you by praying for you. William Grinnell reminds us that uh, telling a trusting, godly friend of your struggles often brings relief. Satan, conversely, knows this too well, and so in order to more freely rifle the soul of its peace and comfort, he frightens it into silence. Don't be silent, but let each other let one another pray for each other. Children, be open and honest with your parents. Tell them how they can pray for you. They'll cherish the opportunity. Husbands and wives, do not keep in all your troubles and all your sins. Thinking that you're uh, protecting your spouse or maintaining the peace. It's all going to come out by the by anyways. Instead, be quick to confess your sins to each other, to bring your troubles to each other, and as broken sinners, take those prayers of repentance to the real head of your family, God the Father, who is quick to forgive, and he'll give you the power, the supply, to carry on the fight for the biblical family. And all of you pray for your pastor. Doesn't get said enough. He like Paul, holds you all in his heart, prays for you all often, indeed constantly, and has to face constant spiritual and temporal attacks for the cause of Christ. 
Don't leave him alone or exposed to these attacks, but surround him as a company of soldiers does its commander and its guide on and ward off the constant assaults of the enemy by hail not of bullets, but of prayers. And one more note on, on prayer. It's been said a lot lately that for whatever pressing issue there is, prayers are not enough. We have to do more. I could imagine such women in Paul's place saying, your, your prayers are weak, useless things. Look, I'm in prison here. I need help. Not prayer. But that's not what Paul says, is it? He says, from the depths of prison, so what? I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. He trusts that those darts will pierce the heart of heaven, that no prayer goes unanswered, and that prayer is indeed the most powerful action a Christian has at his disposal. John Bunyan, that uh, tinker-turned-evangelist, has a book on prayer in which he wrote, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Your way to reach our Lord is through prayer. So pray early, pray often, pray in all things, short prayers, direct prayers. Do not be afraid to ask, for we have a loving Father in heaven who will give to his children far more than they would ask for and all good things that they need. From Paul's resources, then, we can move on to his resolve to honor Christ. And by resolve, I don't mean the force of his own will, but something that, again, comes from outside himself. His resolve begins with that supply of the Spirit. And the word used when Paul describes his objective to honor Christ is in the passive. Paul's not the actor. Paul shows that he is not the agent of honoring Christ, lest he be glorifying himself. The Spirit of Christ is the implied agent who brings about the honor to Christ using Paul as his instrument. Paul's resolve might be from outside himself, but it's his attitude here which best exemplifies what's been supplied to him. He begins with the, the double assertion at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. He has rejoiced in what has happened, and he will rejoice in what will happen, whatever that might be. Rejoicing and joy is one of the main themes of this book, and I hope to focus on it throughout this sermon series. This joy qualifies all of Paul's action and sets his resolve, not as a stoic man standing alone in the midst of his troubles, but one who knows that he is not alone, that he stands supported by these prayers of all the saints, who knows that the victory is already won in Christ, and who knows that Christ will be honored in all events. Indeed, for him to live is Christ. And I said in my intro that Hugh Latimer is best known for how he died, and yet I didn't tell you how he died. <laughs> After his sentencing, when Latimer and the Protestant uh, Bishop of London, uh, Nicholas Ridley, were being fastened to the pyre, 
to be burnt as heretics, Latimer encouraged his compatriot with these words, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. Paul eagerly expects to, like Bishop Latimer, play the man. He wasn't worried about shaming Christ because he knew that God had a good plan for the spread of of the gospel, even by his death. And indeed, the blood of the martyrs, including Paul and Latimer, has been the seed of the church and true religion its whole history. Paul had not just eager expectation, but he had hope, hope that most Christian of virtues. Paul says elsewhere in wonderful poetic verse, and and this is one I, I will occasionally use as a marching cadence because it sticks with you so well. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Hope, brothers and sisters, is the hallmark of Christian faith. I read it in Table Talk uh, just this morning. True Christian hope is neither vague nor vain. It deals not in possibilities, but in certainties. Our hope is in the victorious reigning Christ who is working all things together for our good and for his own glory, his honor. That is our hope. And the final aspect of Paul's resolve here is his courage, his full courage, as the text says, referring particularly to his bold speech and presentation of the gospel to all the people he meets. This sort of boldness and courage in speech, Professor Jones says, is a hallmark of new covenant preaching and witness bearing. It is best exemplified in the forward preaching and bold gospel presentations that mark the apostolic community, the apostolic church. Think of Peter at Pentecost, Stephen before the Jewish council, Paul at the Areopagus. Bold men made bold by the Spirit, preaching a hot gospel to a hell-bound world. That is courage. That is the church at its best. And what's more, it's not just the church at that time, but it's still the church today. William Grinnell says that the Christian of all men needs courage and resolution Indeed, there is nothing he does as a Christian or can do but is an act of valor. A cowardly spirit is beneath the lowest duty of a Christian. Be thou strong and very courageous, says the Lord to Joshua. It requires more prowess and greatness of spirit to obey God faithfully than to command an army of men to be a Christian than a captain. Taking that resolve, let's transfer that thought process to a note of application. Paul himself makes the application clear in verses 25 through 27. There he says that he fully expects that the Philippians will progress and have joy in the faith, 
And so in view of all that we've covered, friends, pray, hope, eagerly expect the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Yes, dare, even dare in these times, to rejoice in the Christian life. We have much to take joy from. We have a long battle with many struggles, hills and valleys, fat times and lean. In it all, we can rejoice, though, because we live in Christ. We are going to meet him and to a far better country. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Paul says. How, we, how do we do that? Only be courageous, fully trusting in the victory that Christ has already won. Be courageous in your fight against sin. That's how we best honor Christ in our bodies, is not using them as vessels for sin. As he so straightforwardly asked the Romans, if we have died to sin, how shall we then still live in it? You cannot do both. Live to Christ because you have died to sin. We've said that it is part, part of Paul's hope and his eager expectation that he will, when the hour comes, not be ashamed. Brother, sister, despite what the world says today, do not be ashamed. If you have died to sin, if your sins have been buried in the tomb with Christ, you have risen with Christ as well. Yes, and the battle will continue against sin all your life, but you belong to Christ, not to your sin any longer. And this is the glorious, one of the most glorious refrains in the whole of the Bible. Isaiah says it, Christ says it, Paul says it, Peter says it, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, Christian, you will have no need to be ashamed. You belong to, have been cleansed by, have been unified to Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So do not be ashamed and live boldly for Christ. And therefore, we should listen all the more to Paul's final application in this text. Do not be frightened by our enemies. Knowing Paul's context, that he stood in prison and would soon be killed. The world may say any number of things about Christians today. That we're behind the times, that we're on the wrong side of history, that we are sinners of the worst kind. But their actions show where they really lie. And the blatant state of the world today is clear enough. Paul says... There is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We have nothing to fear from them. Indeed, they should be afraid of the living God who will not delay and who will by no means clear the guilty. For Christians, we need not fear their fuming or all the gates of hell. They will not prevail against the cause of Jesus Christ. As Paul knows, this world's opposition to Christ and to your Christian living will turn out for your deliverance, your own sanctification, and most importantly, the honor of Christ. 
Let the nations rage. Let the kingdoms totter. God utters his voice and the earth melts. The glory of Christ will come again. The right will be vindicated. And the Lord Bishop Latimer lived for Christ, for the cause of the Reformation and the gospel. And he died a martyr's death on the pyre, praising God that he was good enough to light a flame that would engulf England in the gospel. He, as Paul, could say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christian, is your living Christ? Is God being honored in your body? Seek to honor Christ in all that you do.